Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Steve Fleming and I'm here with my co-host Selena Ray. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. Today we are joined by Ed Wilde, who is a Professor of Neurology at UCL, Associate Director of the UCL Huntington's Disease Centre and a Consultant Neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. And Ed's research is focused on Huntington's disease, which we will hear a lot more about in the duration of the podcast. Welcome, Ed, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So maybe we can just start by hearing kind of in your own words, in a, in a kind of a very brief summary of what your research focuses on. Yeah, so uh, as you said, I study Huntington's disease uh, mostly, um, and I've been doing that since about 2005. Um, so Huntington's disease is a progressive uh, neurogenetic condition, and it's incurable, um, which is kind of what we're trying to change. Um, so we're basically, the, the big picture is that ultimately we want to develop treatments to slow uh, or uh, reverse or even prevent the onset of Huntington's disease um, in people who uh, have had a positive genetic test. Um, and we do that in a number of ways. And obviously that's not that's not something that one person can accomplish. So my bit of trying to sort of build uh, bricks uh, in this wall towards a, uh, or this road towards a cure is to uh, work on biomarkers. So these are kind of measurements that tell us something about what's happening in the brain or body of a person. And so we're looking for things like biomarkers that can predict the onset of Huntington's disease or can tell us whether someone's HD is progressing quickly or slowly um, or whether um, a treatment that we are testing is working or doing harm or not doing anything. So that's kind of that's kind of my research in a nutshell. Fantastic. And I wonder just for our audience whether you could just give us a brief overview of what we know already about the mechanisms behind Huntington's disease, what it is and how it's caused. Yeah. So actually I've kind of previously described Huntington's disease as the most curable incurable brain disease. And I think what what distinguishes it from many of the other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's is that every case of Huntington's disease has a known cause and that cause is the same in everybody who gets the disease or everyone who's going to get the disease. Uh, it was one of the first um, g uh, diseases for which the causative gene was discovered and that happened in 1993. So, um, oh gosh, it's the 30th anniversary. So we've had 30 years of studying uh, this gene and the protein product of the gene, which is called hunting tin with a T-I-N at the end. And um, so, you know, that, that uh, we have a really solid starting point for understanding the biology of the disease. Now, unfortunately, that with that very simple starting point, the gene, the RNA, the protein, everything suddenly then gets very complicated and a little bit like all of the other neurodegenerative diseases in that this rogue protein, although we know exactly what the protein is that causes the disease, this rogue protein then basically messes up more or less everything in neurons and other brain cells, you know, my, uh, other like my, microglia and oligodendrocytes and so on. So it, it, it's it, things... Uh, 
fan out very rapidly from a simple cause to hundreds of derangements. And so the I guess what we've been doing for 30 years, what the field has been doing is, is figuring out which of these derangements are the most important and of the important ones, which are the most treatable and druggable. And in the, at the same time, you know, we've been focusing on this very pinpoint cause of the disease to try and develop targeted treatments that will uh, engage directly with this very upstream gene RNA protein bit of the disease, which, you know, if we can find something that works there, uh, it should be relatively clean and it should be something that would work for everyone, regardless of the kind of balance of the other stuff that's going wrong in their neurons. So in terms of the biology, essentially, the, the mutant gene produces a mutant protein. That protein is toxic to cells. And the most visible manifestation of that is that it, it produces aggregates, little blobs, clumps of protein. And again, this is, you know, strongly echoes what we see in many other neurodegenerative diseases. Um, and like with the other diseases, those, those blobs are visible, but it's not clear whether they are harmful or whether they might be a kind of protective mechanism, you know, hiding uh, more toxic proteins away from the rest of the cell. But one way or another, many things go wrong. The cells start to malfunction. They lose control of their ability to fix themselves. And eventually they, they give up the ghost and die. And that's what produces the symptoms of HD. And we can see it happening quite clearly on uh, brain scans, uh, MRI scans, for instance, 20 or, or even 25 years before expected onset of the disease. You can see very subtle shrinkage of parts of the brain um, called the basal ganglia, the chordate and putamen, which are really um, important important for the control of movement. So, um, and we see that before the development of symptoms, later on the symptoms develop, so patients develop involuntary movements and a form of progressive dementia and behavioral change. So um, uh, in terms of developing, trying to develop treatments, uh, that's kind of the, the big picture. Uh, lots of things are being worked on to, to kind of correct some of the more subtle or the more pathway-like derangements, so individual mechanisms that go wrong in cells. But a big focus for me and my colleagues is uh, these um, kind of targeted genetic treatments or treating the sort of genetic pathways that lead to the disease. And I mean, it'd be fantastic to talk more about the treatments um, later. And and I, was, I just wanted to get a sense of the cohorts of people you're studying here, because it... it, it it feels like such a unique disease in that because it is so strongly genetically linked, you can look much further ahead of time of when symptoms um, occur. So I'm just wondering at the, at the moment, if are people getting screened essentially from um, childhood? And if they know that they might be at risk for the disease, do they know very early in life? And it, is it at that point when they start enrolling in, in your studies? That's a... You, you might think there's a simple answer, but it's actually very complicated. The, so the age of onset of symptoms of HD, people can become sick um, any time from early uh, childhood, you know, two or three years of age into old age, late 90s. And we've seen patients at both ends of that spectrum. Most people, uh, the vast majority of people who are going to develop HD do so between the ages of about 30 and 50. Um, so it's, it's in most cases, it's a, an, a sort of mid-adult life onset um, uh, condition. Uh, and so what that generates is a situation in which many people, the majority of people know that they're at risk of this condition because of an affected parent. Um, but uh, at the time that they become aware of this knowledge, you know, in their teens or 20s or whatever, they... Um, they know they also 
have a good reason to expect that they may have several decades of healthy life ahead of them, during which their brain will actually function indistinguishably from someone with no problems, no no uh, disease. So the, the genetic test is, in m most cases, is something that predicts the future, but it does so in a slightly unhelpful way. In other words, it, it tells you that you will get Huntington's disease at some point, but it doesn't really give you useful information about when that's going to happen. Uh, not accurately enough to make very precise plans about your life. So in co as a consequence of that, and also as a consequence of a lot of the genetic discrimination that exists, and the fact that there is no currently no treatment to slow the disease, the majority of people who know that risk of HD currently aren't tested. So it's it's in the UK, it's, a, it's only about 20% of people who are at risk who have actually had a predictive genetic test. Um, th I think this is probably changing very slowly as, as a sense emerges that um, we, you know, that we're making solid progress towards treatments, but th those figures are still about accurate. So the, the, the short answer to your question is no, we don't, we don't generally do predictive tests on anyone under the age of 18 because it is, uh, you know, it, it is really the person's right to make an informed decision as an adult uh, to about whether they wish to get tested and whether they wish to have this knowledge about their future or whether they would rather carry on not knowing and, and, some, and living at, at risk. When we test children, it's usually because um, of a clinical change in the child that is suspicious of childhood onset Huntington's disease, things like going off the rails at school or you know developing neurological signs or symptoms. That's when we would generally test a child. In the future, if we have a really good treatment, I could easily see us testing, you know, neonates, in, you know, on a on a after, shortly after birth, in order to give them the treatment, whatever it is. Um, but we're not in that position yet. However, we do have large cohorts of very enthusiastic people of all ages, including children, lots of young adults and older adults as well, who. Um, either take part in research without having been tested simply on the basis of their at-risk status or um, are uh, uh, have had a positive genetic test and then um, and use that information uh, as part of a decision to take part in research. And, and those cohorts, uh, uh, particularly of the young adults who enroll in research studies to understand the natural history of the disease and to develop, to develop biomarkers, have, have really been instrumental in the progress that we've made towards treatments because it's really only you know the the unique property of this disease is that we do have this genetic test that will predict exactly who's going to get the disease and actually increasingly we we think of everyone with that mutation as having Huntington's disease even if they haven't developed symptoms yet um, but what they have is a, a form of Huntington's disease that may be confined to cells or or to you know changes on neuroimaging or biomarkers and and that understanding has come from studying people who are young or far from clinical onset um, to help understand the very early subtle changes that the disease starts to cause. And so Ed, I think it's such a beautiful summary that you're giving of something quite complicated. Before we maybe talk a little bit about the trials, because I really do want to give you kind of space to talk about those, I just wanted to pick up on something you mentioned where the test can tell you that you will get Huntington's, but it can't tell you when. And so it's not as simple as looking at the age that somebody's parents or other family members develop symptoms. Can you elaborate on, on kind of that that area a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's super interesting because HD, like I said, it was one of the first genes 
uh, for a brain disease that was discovered in, back in the early 90s. But what, what was what's special about this particular mutation is that it's not a point mutation. So it's not a single letter substitution or insertion or deletion. It is a, a triplet repeat expansion. So the, the base sequence CAG uh, in the DNA uh, exists repeated several times in every human being. And there's an interesting side story there if you want to talk about sea urchins. But um, in humans, um, we all have two copies of the Huntington gene containing, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 CAGs. And that's a, that's a normal healthy number. And each of those CAGs uh, is an instruction to add a glutamine residue, amino acid, to the Huntington protein when it's being made. Um, so, uh, and over evolutionary time, the number of CAGs tends to grow. And there's some suggestion that more CAGs makes the cells better at metabolizing, which is probably why this phenomenon exists. In people with Huntington's disease or people who are going to get Huntington's disease, they generally have 40 or more CAGs. Um, so they have a big expansion in the number of CAGs outside the normal range. And one of the earliest observations once the gene had been discovered was that more CAGs correlated really well with earlier onset of the disease. So, you know, 42 or 44 CAGs is this sort of very common um, number for an expansion carrier. And those are the people who tend to get the disease between 30 and 50 years. But if you have 70 or 80 CAGs, that is a strong predictor of juvenile or even childhood onset Huntington's disease. And it's a really strong correlation when you look at thousands of patients and their CAGs and their age of onset. However, in that 40 to 50 CAG range, the correlation is there, but the, uh, there's a lot of variability. So it's very clear that the CAG is a very important contributor to the age of onset. But, but you know, we've, we've absolutely seen people with the same CAG count, the number of CAGs, get the disease at 20 years of age or 80 years of age. There's that much variation, which is why for most people, we're happy to tell them the number of CAGs and, and many people are interested. But the, the next thing we need to say is this is your CAG count, but it's actually not that helpful because you, you might get Huntington's disease in your 20s or 30s or you if you're lucky, you might be 70 or 80. And actually, one of the big things that's changed over the past few years is thanks to tens of thousands of people giving blood samples over the past couple of decades through the uh, Enroll HD study, we have enough um, DNA samples now to conduct really well-powered genome-wide association studies. So that's where we, 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 we look for things other than the CAG repeat count that predict the age of onset or the rate of progression of Huntington's disease. And with tens of thousands of samples, you start to get really strong signals of genes other than the HD gene, which are influencing the age of onset of Huntington's disease. Um, and so um, a big discovery in the past few years has been that um, there are genes whose job is making the machinery that repairs DNA and tiny changes in those genes can have a big impact on the age of onset of Huntington's disease. And it's something to do with the way that the, the DNA is repaired in our neurons. Um, if, if you have a, an unfavorable set of um, 
little genetic differences, you can actually end up with a DNA machinery that repairs the DNA not so well. And in the process of trying to repair it, it actually adds extra CAGs. And as we know, more CAGs creates a more toxic protein. So we've got this really interesting mechanism where these DNA repair proteins are now a big focus of the disease and these and the genes that encode them. Because this whole DNA repair machinery turns out to be really important for keeping the CAG in your brain the same size as it was when you were born. And, and uh, you know, we're hoping that we might be able to actually therapeutically stop the CAG from growing. That's called somatic expansion. Um, and if we can do that, we might be able to slow the progression of HD. So that's another kind of really strong genetic lead. But I guess that's the answer to why the age of onset thing is interesting. But like everything in HD, it starts off with a simple concept and then it immediately gets more complicated. But that's life. And are there, are there factors outside of the GWAS study that also predict age of onset? So I'm thinking if it, you mentioned their DNA repair and not allowing the CAG repeats to get too long. So I'm, I'm thinking if there are other factors that have been looked at in terms of environmental factors or is there anything beyond that that has, has been discovered? That's a huge question. And it, I think the answer is definitely Yes, there are definitely things other than genes, things in the environment, and by which we mean, you know, life stuff, right? So diet, exercise, medications, other diseases, you know, what uh, what color jumper you wear, whatever, that can, <laughs> that can influence the progression of HD. It's very easy to identify things that can speed up the progression of HD, okay? So, you know, people who have multiple head injuries, people who generally look after their brains poorly, uh, people who abuse alcohol or, um, you know, or um, are at high risk of cardiovascular disease will tend to have rates of progression of HD that are faster. What we don't have is strong evidence of anything that was in, in the life, uh, stuff that people can do that will slow the progression of HD. And it's not for want of trying, right? But like I say, we have these tens of thousands of patients in, in cohorts and we, we study them every year. So we, we ask them about lifestyle and medications and so on. And then we follow them prospectively. But the trouble is that, you know, humans are not like mice. It's you, you can't, you know, get 100 humans and 100 uh, other humans and put, put one of them in a cage and give them cheese every day and one of them in a cage and give them chocolate every day for 10 or 20 years. So the progression of HD is really slow. And the data around lifestyle are so noisy because there are so many differences from one person to another in terms of what they do in their lives that it's we just don't yet have the statistical power to be able to confidently say this is good and this is bad. So unfortunately, the, the best advice we can give here is the really boring stuff that comes from other fields. It is exercise is good. Uh, look after your blood vessels. You know, get your blood pressure checked, get your cholesterol checked. Yeah, don't do the don't do the bad diet. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Probably don't smoke. Although we like we're not one hundred percent sure about that, but it, it, it's it seems bad, and it's definitely bad for blood vessels. And it seems to make sense that healthy blood vessels equals healthy brain. But again, you know, we just don't have the data specific to Huntington's disease to be able to say, you know, this is the advice. So um, it's something that's being worked on. There's an interesting story, though, that does come from mice, which is this thing about environmental enrichment. And it sounds very posh, but actually what was what the experiment was, was that they took some mice with the HD mutation and they 
they left half of them in uh, cages with sawdust and half of them they gave them the cardboard inner bit of a toilet roll. And that was the environmental enrichment. And um, the difference in terms of the onset of the disease symptoms and the rate of progression in the mice that had the cardboard toilet roll tube to play with was as strong as any medication that had been tested in the mice. Um, and so from that, it hasn't been replicated in humans because it's very difficult to do, but from that, it's really, you know, we have really strong reason to believe that environmental enrichment, in other words, having a varied intellectually and physically fulfilling life is probably one of the best ways to safeguard your brain against whatever might be about to happen to it. But in particular, people with the HD mutation can protect their themselves in that way. This is not me advising everyone to invest in a giant uh, cylinder of cardboard and spend half their time running through it in their living rooms. If only adults, <laughs> if only adults were pleased so easily. My one-year-old is certainly happy with a um, cardboard toilet right. roll. Maybe they're trying to tell us. <laughs> so Ed, I wonder if we could maybe now um, ask you to talk a little bit about treatments and the trials that have happened, because I know this is something you've been really um, deeply involved in, and I know it's also something that's been a bit of an emotional roller coaster, I think, in, in some ways. So maybe we can get you to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, roller coaster is right. It's been um, it's been a very interesting uh, decade uh, for treatments in Huntington's disease. So until about uh, uh, 2015, the things that we had tested in HD because we hadn't figured out mechanisms and we hadn't we didn't have great drugs for for addressing the known cause of hd so what we were testing was basically stuff that we thought might be broadly good and healthy for uh, brain cells and that, that was a, a bunch of stuff that uh, that has largely been tested in other diseases things like creatine coenzyme q um minocycline uh you know various kind of potentially neuroprotective um, substances. And unfortunately, none of it worked. Um, and that's fine. And that's good to know. But um, since the late 90s, uh, there's been a huge amount of progress in the field of the targeted uh, therapeutic modulation of DNA and RNA. So um, in other words, things like RNA interference, where basically instead of trying to change someone's DNA, we kind of monkey around with the protein manufacturing pipeline at the level of the RNA. So the DNA is a template for the RNA. The RNA is kind of a working copy of the DNA. And actually the RNA just floats around freely in the cell and is relatively easy to interact with. And in fact, you can make a drug molecule out of DNA or RNA. And that drug molecule, because of the way that DNA uh, pairs up one base to another, it's relatively easy now with advances in chemistry and technology and so on to make a drug out of DNA or RNA that will interact very specifically with the RNA of the gene that you want to interact with and not other genes. And therefore, you can actually make a kind of custom volume control for any gene. You can turn it up or turn it down, depending on how you approach the, the um, problem. So for us in Huntington's disease, this is where our genetic advantage really gives us a head start because we know exactly what we need to do, right? This mutant gene is producing a toxic protein. So if we tell the cells to make less of that protein, all being well, we have every right to expect that that will work not only to 
slow the progression of the disease, but also potentially to prevent it. And so that's what we did. And uh, the first of these um, Huntington lowering drugs that we tested uh, now goes by the name of Tommy Nursen. At the time, it was called HTTRX. Um, and um, after at least 10 years of preclinical development by a company called Ionis Pharmaceuticals, um, we uh, were able to set up the first clinical trial of that um, drug. And actually, by uh, a quirk of destiny, I guess, I ended up being the person who gave the first dose of that drug back in September 2015 um, to a patient that I had known for 10 years. And honestly, she's the Neil Armstrong of Huntington's disease, or maybe the Yuri Gagarin of Huntington's disease. Extraordinary. It was the first time this drug had been given to a human being. And what's more, because of the structure of this drug, it's made from uh, genetically, uh, sorry, chemically modified DNA. It has to be injected directly into the spine in a lumbar puncture procedure. Um, so we stick a tiny needle into the spine and inject the drug into that. And it, from there, it spreads up into the brain. Um, we'd never done that before with a drug. So it was a it kind of, uh, this is the start of a very emotional roller coaster. Um, it went in fine and nothing bad happened. And we, we then enrolled uh, 46 patients in that very first uh, trial. And um, the main outcome of that trial was safety. In other words, was this drug safe if we gave four doses a month apart? The second thing we were looking for was um, in the spinal fluid, could we measure the level of the Huntington protein, the mutant Huntington protein, and could we show that we had actually successfully told the brain to produce less of that protein? And it took two years and three months and six days uh, for that result to come through. And um, But in December 2017, we were able to show that not only had we done it, lowered the protein, but we'd also done it in a, in a way that dramatically exceeded our best hopes for the drug. And it was also what we call dose-dependent lowering. In other words, the bigger the dose of drug that was given, the bigger the reduction in Huntington protein. And so this is exactly what we wanted. It was this kind of volume control concept where we have this really like um, custom tailorable uh, degree of Huntington lowering. Um, so that was, you know, kind of big news. We were the lead story on the BBC News at 10 and so on. And and, and it was definitely, even now, we look back on it and we, we still agree that, well, I think personally, and many other people agree that it was the, it was the best piece of research news we've had in Huntington's disease, certainly since the discovery of the gene in 93. This is where the story gets a little bit sad. Um, so we started a phase, we went straight into a phase three trial, enrolling 800 people. And at that point, the, um, the drug program had been taken over by Roche Pharmaceuticals. Um, and so um, we started enrolling into this trial called Generation HD1. And then COVID happened and the Huntington's disease community really came uh, into its own because in the middle of the very first COVID lockdown, we still managed to get this 800 person trial fully recruited in record time. And we managed to get the whole trial run, even though there were kind of rolling lockdowns all around the world. So we got fully recruited, but then um, in uh, March of 2021, um, the data safety committee that had been looking at the data all along, basically issued a report saying that having looked at the trajectories of the people who were taking the drug, um, it was clear that they weren't that the trial was not going to meet its endpoint, and in fact, there was a sign that the people who were on the more frequent doses of drug every eight weeks were actually doing a bit worse than the people who were on placebo. Um, so the trial was immediately halted, and this happened during 
what in the UK was another big COVID lockdown, which meant that we had to, all we could do was phone our patients and tell them. We couldn't even see them in person, nor could we even meet with each other as researchers and sort of commiserate in person and give each other hugs. We're a very huggy community. Um, you know, we, we've all kind of got skin in the game at this point in terms of our personal, you know, commitment to the field. And we all have friends with HD and so on. Um, so it was, a, it was absolutely heartbreaking. Since then, we have been, you know, waiting for the dust to fall, waiting for the data to come out from the trial, waiting for the follow-up data from the people who had been on drug. And, and things are kind of looking much more optimistic now. I, th I think we have a good um, working hypothesis for what happened. And, and there's a strong consensus that basically the number of milligrams of dose, sorry, the number of milligrams of drug given was 120, which is a big dose of this particular class of ASO uh, drugs made from DNA. That high dose of um, DNA injected into the spine appears to trigger uh, something like an inflammatory reaction in the brain. And we see that in the spinal fluid in terms of white cells and protein being released into the spinal fluid. And later on, we see an increase in this protein called neurofilament, which is a marker of neuronal injury. And the neurofilament level actually went up uh, in the first six months of treatment. But then, and this is one of the kind of biggest mysteries in the field, even though people carried on getting the drug, the neurofilament levels started to fall, suggesting that something was improving, but it was improving from a level that was higher than we started with. So needless to say, we then stepped back and said, well, that might be promising, but like, wouldn't it be good if the neurofilament never went up in the first place? In other words, if we could start from zero and go down, that would be a sign that we'd actually done something to protect neurons. And so we look back at the whole data set in a post hoc analysis. And the hypothesis was if, if people are younger and with smaller CAG repeat lengths, so in other words, they're expected to progress more slowly, their brains might be more resilient and they might be people who were able to sort of um, do reasonably well in spite of this early inflammatory response to the drug. And indeed, that's what we saw. And and those that subgroup of people seemed to be on their way to, to actually achieving benefit from the drug. And we don't, you know, there's no clinical claims made from this particular trial. It's a it's a, a an after the event analysis. It's like, you know, you you do something cool with a pool table and then say, I meant to do that. It only really counts if you say it in advance, right? So but it's something that generates a hypothesis. And that hypothesis has now been turned into a design for a new trial of Tominersen, where we're testing um, lower doses and slightly further apart at the beginning of the trial, with the expectation that we will avoid this inflammatory thing and hopefully tap directly into potential benefits from the drug. And that trial actually started enrolling in the USA uh, yesterday. <laughs> by coincidence, um, January the 11th at the time of recording. So that's pretty exciting. Um, so there but, are some kind of silver linings, potentially. I heard a absolutely. book coming. Sorry, Ed, I'll yeah, let you, no. let you uh... <laughs> It's a good but, if I may say okay. so. Um, it's, um, you know, seven years since we gave that first dose of Tom and Urson, And of course, the, nothing stands still. And, it's, you know, it, the great thing about science is that it, it never stops. It's cumulative. We learn from failures and we learn from successes and everything moves us closer as long as people aren't faking data, everything moves us closer towards our goal. And so in the meantime, 
several other techniques have been developed and honed and finessed and are now actually in human trials. So two big examples. Number one is gene therapies for Huntington's disease. So a gene therapy is a distinct thing where you add an extra gene to a person that is actually an active gene, right? So it's, it's active and it's producing protein or producing a gene product. Um, so, uh, you know, it's been a big couple of years for unhealthy viruses, but we can actually take a healthy virus called AAV or harmless virus called AAV, scoop out its contents, replace it with something else that we've, um, or other, you know, the drug company Unicure has designed. And then in a very long, but very carefully uh, worked out brain operation, we can inject this virus, genetically modified virus into the part of the brain that's affected by HD. That then gives the cells, the neurons, a set of instructions that turns them into a factory for making a molecule that switches off the Huntington gene. And the good thing about these viruses is that the way they inject their contents into the neuron should be lifelong. The, the effect should be lifelong. So it's kind of a one-off treatment, a one-shot treatment that's, that's hard when you first do it, but then you don't have to do anything after that. The patient is essentially self-treating inside the brain. So um, uh, that trial started in, I think, 2019 with very, very small numbers and has been slowly, slowly, slowly ramping up and is still um, ongoing. And the good thing about that is that, you know, the, the more people we add to that trial, the more data we have because everyone who first started getting treated in 2019 is still active in the trial because the drug, the, the gene therapy never stops. So we're very optimistic that that is something that will also produce a degree of Huntington lowering that might be helpful. And then the other big thing is um, the advent of oral Huntington lowering drugs. And so this is basically trying to accomplish the same thing that the injected drug did back in 2015, but um, in the form of a pill. And uh, you know, if you told me in 2015 when I was s s sat there with my needle waiting to stab the first patient in the back that in uh, seven years we'd have a pill to do the same thing, you know, I don't I don't know for sure. I probably would have said, well, let's do this for now and we'll see what happens. But, um, you know, certainly if I had a choice back then of an injection or a pill, I, said, I probably would have gone for the pill. We have to explore all avenues and we don't yet know what the you know, potential benefits and, and disadvantages of these pills might be. One big issue is that being a pill, they're probably slightly less specific to the Huntington gene. Um, so they can't, they, they can't be made of DNA or RNA. So they have to kind of use other little genetic quirks of the Huntington gene. And that might make them a bit less um, specific. And the other thing is, we, we have no idea what the effects might be of switching off the Huntington gene outside the brain. So Huntington in the body, um, most people don't really have physical bodily symptoms of HD beyond weight loss. Um, but uh, we don't know what happens if you actually, you know, cause people's bodies to produce less Huntington than they normally would. So very exciting times, multiple different approaches being tried. And, you know, we're, we're not going to stop until we have one thing that works for everybody. I mean, it's such an amazing story and such an exciting field um, with obviously huge um, relevance to people's lives to be working in. I'm just wondering like, from the um, what the response was amongst the Huntington community, amongst the 800 people enrolled in that trial when the Data Safety Board made that ruling. And, and I could imagine people, I guess, having their own emotional roller coaster surrounding that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think universally the reaction was heartbreak from people in the trial, scientists and clinicians mm. involved in the trial and also the whole field, but even if they had no involvement in the trial, because really everyone's in it for the same thing. And even if they're working on their own treatments, they everyone just wants something that works. That heartbreak then I think quite rapidly evolved into a sense of enthusiasm for finding out what went wrong. And I've not spoken to anyone in that, who was in that trial who regrets being in it. And even the people who themselves would acknowledge that they progressed more rapidly than they would have liked. They, most of our patients have multiple family members affected by HD. Many of them have kids or nieces or nephews who are at risk and they're all doing it for someone else. Um, and across the board, the reaction was basically, well, I went into this trial knowing that there might be some risk. This drug is still the drug, the only drug we have that's actually engaged meaningfully with the cause of HD. Therefore, it was the right thing to do the trial. Knowing what we know now, we might do it differently. And, you know, as a person in the trial, my, my contribution, even though it may have left me worse off or didn't help me, um, my contribution is exactly what it was supposed to be, which is adding to knowledge. It, obviously, not everyone ends up rapidly being that kind of sanguine. But like I say, I've spoken to lots of people at our site and to others who were involved in that trial. And they're all really glad that they were that they, that they were in it because they, they all know, uh, A, that there was risk, but also B, that we, as long as we learn as much as possible, then the trial was worth, um, was worth doing. Absolutely. And I think I think for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with this area, it's also worth saying how you've not only learned more about how to do Huntington's disease t- trials, it tells us what we should be doing in other neurodegenerative diseases as well. We're really learning a huge amount about what we might do in Alzheimer's or what we might do in Parkinson's based on what we've we've kind of the information we've got from this amazing community. Um, and I think, as you said. Ed, the community is really at the center of what you do. I know you work extremely closely with them. And I wonder if you might elaborate a little bit on your experience of being part of this patient, um, family, clinician, scientist community. And I'm particularly interested um, for listeners can't see this, but Ed is recording in his office and over his right shoulder is a framed photo of him meeting the Pope. And I wonder if we, we might talk a bit about how that happened. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's, uh, that's actually a really good example of how these things kind of come together when everyone pulls in the same uh, direction. I mean, the thing that's clear about HD, like people people who have a terrible disease, brain disease, will tend to find other people and will form a community. So that there are strong communities for, for people with all sorts of brain diseases. I think genetic diseases tend to create a particularly uh, interconnected kind of community because like I say people are maybe at risk themselves and want to do what they can to protect their own brain but they're also you know thinking about the next generation and their other family members and and so you know the the, the gene for HD was was actually discovered by uh, a consortium that was put together by one family the Wexler family from the US that put together this big consortium of scientists that then discovered the gene um, and, and that's how we've done everything. Everything that we've done in HD has been as a result of really close collaboration between networked scientists and researchers, plus networked patients and families. And actually increasingly, uh, the, pe- the scientists working on HD 
are many of them are HD family members themselves. Some have uh, tested positive, negative, or not tested, but they, you know, they're they've they're you know they really got skin in the game. And so as a as a you know, I joined the community in two thousand and five, and I was a, a young uh, child looking uh, boy basically in my uh, mid twenties, um, and I kind of joined the field because uh, I met. Sarah Tabrizi, who is the uh, director of the UCLHD Center and my sort of friend and mentor. And um, I met her and she said, well, I've got this um, research post um, that you might be interested in. Um, why don't you come to an HD clinic? So I went to one HD clinic and um, was immediately kind of struck by this sense of community and working together and and being there for these people who wanted to do whatever they could but we they just needed some help from people like me so um then as you as you sort of get more and more involved in the community you meet lots of patients in the clinic but also you meet patients and families at the at the um conferences and things like that and many scientists who who like i say have hd in their family and and you know you look back and you find that actually um, this has become really personal and this has become, um, well, let me put it this way. This is this quest to find meaningful treatments for this disease has given my life a meaning that it didn't have before that I, I'm not sure I could have got any other way. Maybe that's not true. Uh, I'll, I guess I'll never know. But anyway, we are where we are and this is now my life's work. Um, so the nature of this interconnected community is that it tends from time to time, it will sort of throw up. A, um, someone with a particular skill set um, who has uh, a personal connection. And one such person is a, a friend of mine called Charles Sabine, who used to be an NBC news correspondent. He was a war correspondent. Um, so he's, his face was quite well known, particularly in the US. Um, and uh, about, well, it was about 20, 2007, I first met him when he gave a, an incredible uh, introductory speech at a conference. Um, that was for scientists, but he gave this really moving account of his own journey of discovering that he was at risk and then testing positive for HD. So Charles is always looking for ways to increase awareness. And when Pope Francis was first elected, um, he made a public announcement that a big focus of his papacy was going to be illness and genetic disease and removing the stigma of genetic disease because he's a Franciscan uh, and St. Francis was uh, big into healing, as I understand it. So um, with so Charles got together with uh, colleagues who um, look after patients in South America where there's a lot more HD than there is in Europe. And they wrote to the Pope's office and said, would you be willing to have an audience with one Huntington's disease patient? Um, because uh, if we could take a photo of you and a, a Huntington's patient from Venezuela, um, that would make a huge impact in terms of the awareness of the disease and would probably directly lead to improvements in the health of the patients in Venezuela, knowing that the Pope has you know, caring for patients as a priority. And the Pope amazingly wrote back saying, I will not meet with one patient from Venezuela. I will meet 350 people in wow. a formal audience in uh, the audience hall in the Vatican. And so um, in, uh, in 2017, uh, in the summer of 2017, uh, hundreds of uh, patients and family members, in fact, it was thousands, gathered in the Vatican. And as a Huntington's disease researcher and a doctor, I was 
uh, incredibly privileged to be invited to be part of that audience. And we were expecting him to give a talk, meet a couple of patients on the front row of the audience and go back into his chambers. He gave this speech in which he said that genetic stigma is wrong. It's not a sin to have a, a genetic disease. It's not unclean. We must embrace patients with diseases. We must work together and it must be a focus of all healthcare organizations, including the Catholic Church, to uh, to work to reduce the stigma and improve the lives of people with all incurable diseases. And then he stepped off the stage and spent an hour and a half embracing all of the people in, uh, in the front of the audience, like I say, about 350 people. And um, there were people sort of throwing themselves at his feet and you know, trying to kiss his ring. And without exception, he sort of lifted them up and embraced them standing because he just really doesn't want, you know, he wants to meet people as equals. Um, extraordinary. And to see Charles Sabine, my old friend, on stage addressing the Pope, talking about the plight of his family, describing how his brother had died in a nursing home, having been an extremely high achieving lawyer. I think it's the most moving thing I've ever seen. And I'm not, you know, I'm not an over-sentimental person, but goodness me, what an, what an incredible occasion. And really um, just one example of the, the ways in which this community always comes together and um, always uh, surpasses expectations of what a, a group of human beings living with such a terrible condition can be expected to deliver. Yeah, so fantastic story and really um, uplifting as well. And you you already mentioned briefly at the start of that um, story about how you started getting into this field um, and you mentioned working with Sarah Tabriti at the start of your career here. I'm just wondering whether we can take it a bit earlier than that, because um, on this podcast, we also like to hear how the people doing the science is, is doing the science got into what they're interested in now. So could you give us a bit of background, like what were your steps from studying medicine to then getting into research on, on this topic? Well, so when I was at medical school, I, I guess I was just a very kind of cautious person. I was really interested in surgery and I used to love um, going to theatre and getting covered in blood and all that stuff. Hacking you know, <laughs> into people and, and being asked to stitch stitch the abdomen up afterwards and so on. Uh, but then... Um, Did you do your med medical training in London? What was, at where Cambridge, were you I'm afraid. Cambridge. Yeah, one of those people. But I was, <laughs> my just in my defence, my background was, was quite, uh, quite different from a sort of stereotypical Cambridge background. I grew up in a tiny village in the north and a single parent family. And, um, you know, I was I went to a, a private school, but on a kind of scholarship from the, the government. And um, so um, for me, the choice of medicine was part, partly motivated by financial security, because I'd seen both my parents go through some very difficult financial times in the 80s and 90s. Um, so Cambridge let me in. And uh, I just loved it, loved the science, loved the medicine. Um, you know, it's hard, but it was really uh, fulfilling. Got to the clinical side and like I say, really enjoyed the surgery. Um, but I had a slightly dodgy shoulder and it, was just, it just made me aware that if I became a surgeon, I'd be perpetually reliant on my hands. So if my hands for any reason, like if I lost a finger in a railway accident or something or whatever, uh, it, you know, you can't do the job anymore. So I thought, well, to be a surgeon, you've got to have a good brain and good hands. To be a 
physician, you only need a good brain, right? You could do it most of it sitting down, and someone else, <laughs> someone else can examine the patient for you. So that was part of it. But actually, the reality is that when I actually started working on the wards, um, it was the it was the physicians that were really doing the things that I had wanted to do, which is, in a more general sense, using their brains to try and figure out the problem, and you know making potentially small iterative changes in the lives of people that would and and thinking very holistically about the, the you know the patient's home circumstances and so on not that surgeons don't do that but i think even surgeons would agree physicians do it more and so that's what sort of pushed me towards um medicine rather than surgery then after my first year in um in the hospitals in the uk i just wanted a big change so i moved to new zealand for a year with my partner we lived in Wellington and it was the most um, wonderful time. Strongly recommend living in New Zealand. Um, and randomly, I was allocated to a job uh, working with neurologists. And it was, it was on my list of things I might be interested in, but I hadn't really settled on anything. And then day one on the wards doing neurology, absolutely loved it. It's just a real, you know, kind of Sherlock Holmes kind of specialty where you really, there's not many symptoms and signs that a patient can have, right? That, you know, blurred vision, headache, weakness, tingling, numbness. There's not that many. It wouldn't take me long to list all of the possible symptoms. But the thing is the combinations that people come in with and the order and the the way that they affect them is always different. And so even the most kind of mundane sort of headache story will always have to it something unique and something to get your teeth into. Um, and so that, you know, that's, it's that kind of Sherlock Holmes thrill of the chase thing. And neurology has a bit of a stereotype for being the specialty of medicine that just documents decline. And, you know, from time to time, we'll give a short course of steroids. But actually, during the course of my career, it has completely transformed into something that is actually one of the most active in terms of the development of new treatments. If you look at things like multiple sclerosis, spinal muscular atrophy, these are things that were completely untreatable when I started, or the treatments we had were, you know, a bit rubbish. And now the you, you diagnose with MS, and the first thing is, well, which of these ten amazing drugs should we put you on that will suit you best? Because we know they're all really good at preventing the disease from progressing. So that's you know hopefully uh, a trend that will continue. Um, yeah, so that was it really for clinical. And, and then and then from there did you so and what was the journey mm. from there to Queen Square and um, meeting Sarah? Yeah, so um, a guy called Lindsay Haas, who's now no longer with us, sat me down and said, um, "We want you to be a neurologist. We think you're good, but we want you to go back to the go back to London, go to Queen Square, get yourself trained up." <laughs> I've never heard of Queen Square. Uh, no reason anyone listening should have heard of it uh, unless they're already interested in neurology. But basically, Queen Square is kind of a, well, it's a place, obviously, but it's also a kind of um, a metaphor for uh, neurology in the UK, basically. And I hope that doesn't offend anyone, who, any neurologists who work outside Queen Square. But basically, it, Queen Square is the place in the UK. <laughs> so, right, you said it was a we'll metaphor. Give them your email address. <laughs> send, send their complaints directly to you. <laughs> It, I mean, it is kind of used interchangeably for, it's certainly outside the UK, it's, it's it, you know, go to Queen Square is something that people say when, when they, what they mean is um, go and do something that is intensely neurological. <laughs> um, so um, 
I got back to London and th- and spent a year at the Whittington in, in um, an archway, North London. And while I was there, it happened that the three neurologists who work at the Whittington also had um, attachments in Queen Square. So I basically spent all of my free time sucking up to these neurologists, sitting in on their clinics, asking them question after question, probably being super annoying. But in the process, kind of, they told me how to get a neurology job in Queen Square, the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. So um, I applied and um, one of the people I'd been sucking up to happened to be on the panel. Um, I don't know whether that helped or not, but it was certainly uh, nice to see when I got into this very intimidating room. And it, and I, it, long story short, I got the job. And during that nine month clinical attachment, that's when I met Sarah Tabrizi in a general neurology clinic. And we kind of really uh, clicked with each other um, personality wise. Um, someone took me aside, actually, one of one of um, Sarah's friends and colleagues, now Professor Simon Mead, who's a prion disease researcher. He took me aside and said, um, I heard you might be thinking of getting a job with Sarah Tabrizi. Uh, and I, I said, yeah. And he said, well, I just want you to know she's going places. And that was what he said. Um, you know, you should do whatever's right for you, but Sarah Tabrizi is going places. And that really stuck with me, as you can tell. I mean, we're like uh, uh, 15 more, or more years later, and, and I still remember it. And it's absolutely true. She And she really, uh, she's been an incredibly kind of generous mentor in that she's um, often passed to me opportunities, you know, talks and collaborations and projects that she could easily have taken on herself. But, but it's the selflessness alongside the... Uh, surpassing accomplishment and intelligence of Sarah Tabrizi that is really um, what you what 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 constitutes the ideal mentor slash uh, friend and colleague. And I'm you know I feel I'm lucky enough to know both you and Sarah Red. And actually, when we were discussing who should we invite as a guest on the podcast, we did at one point think about inviting you both on together as kind of a little double act (laughs) but then I I thought no this is you know a bad idea because it would be a five hour long episode five hours and neither of you would get a word in yeah exactly (laughs) I'm not even sure there is a microphone on earth that could capture that podcast (laughs) I was like it would have to be its own little mini series so maybe we need to do one at a time (laughs) yeah we could do a spin-off (laughs) yeah. <laughs> the Ed and Sarah show. The Ed and Sarah show. Oh, turn Sounds your volume good. down and tune in. <laughs> you, heard, you heard it here first, coming to UCL podcast soon. So, Ed, I mean, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing your stories today. It's honestly been such a fascinating discussion. Um, I think we could go on, but we, we should bring things to an end. So I thought, first of all, can we just thank you for joining us? And can we wrap up by picking up on something you said earlier, which is you mentioned you had an interesting fact about sea urchins, and I don't want to leave our listeners in suspense. So can you can we close by you telling us about sea urchins and the, the relevance to Huntington's? Always happy to talk about sea urchins. I've gone veggie though, so I can't eat them anymore as part of a Japanese meal. But anyway, so um, there's this amazing scientist called Elena Cataneo in Italy, and she spends a lot of her time studying the evolutionary biology of the Huntington gene. And what's remarkable is that if you look at slime mold, okay, so this is a story about sea urchins that begins with slime mold, um, uh, Dictyostelium, right, is the first, is the most primordial organism that has a Huntington gene. And it's also one of the first organisms that's capable of forming multicellular structures rather than existing as a single cell. So there may be a clue there as to how Huntington is doing what it does. But the 
the slime mold Huntington has no CAG at the beginning of it, unlike the gene that we talked about earlier. To find the CAG, it back, looking back in evolutionary time, you have to start with sea urchins, okay? So sea urchins are one of the uh, earliest creatures that still exists that has any kind of nervous system, and clearly it's rather rudimentary. So sea urchins do have a nervous system, but the organisms just before them in evolution don't have a nervous system. And amazingly, that coincides with two CAGs appearing at the beginning of the Huntington gene. So the sea urchin is the first organism in evolutionary biology that has CAGs in a Huntington gene. And it's also one of the first that has a nervous system, which probably tells you something about how important the Huntington protein is for the nervous system. And then as evolution proceeds, the number of CAG slowly, slowly, slowly creeps up. So like, um, you know, uh, dogs, I think have six or eight CAGs, uh, lower primates like chimps have like 10 to 12 and then humans have typically 15 to 20 and then Huntington's disease happens when you have 40 or more so really the the disease we're studying is a case of a gene trying to get bigger over evolutionary time and succeeding and in the process enabling humans to develop this state-of-the-art luxury nervous system that we are blessed with uh, but the downside is that this tendency of the gene to expand can also happen from one generation to the next. And when that happens, it becomes too much of a good thing. And that's when we start to see Huntington's disease. So um, big thanks to sea urchins for being that critical piece in the millennia old history of the Huntington gene. Okay, well, well, from sea urchins to the Pope, we have covered a lot of ground today. Um, well, thank you so much, Ed Wilde, for coming on Brain Stories, and we wish you all the very best of luck with the ongoing clinical trials for Huntington's disease. We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir, and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking Brain Stories from an idea to a fully-fledged podcast. We thank Patrick Robinson and UCL Digital Education for editing and mixing. Please follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes. And we'll see you next time.